0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Futuro.
1: Hey, Latino USA listener. Un show de los archivos. Also, there will be some four-letter words that are going to drop, so be prepared.
2: You can see Juarez from where we're standing. You can see the buildings across the river. You can see the fence right there that divides the two countries. So Juárez is right in view. It's
3: the cusp of summer as the sun sets over La Frontera. I joined Dr. Yolanda Leiva, a history professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. And there's also David Romo, a historian who specializes on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands.
4: Just from this street alone, I mean, you could just go building by building and it tells you the most important chapters of Mexican-American history. We are within walking distance of the Paso del
3: Norte Bridge, one of the border bridges that connects El Paso to Ciudad Juarez. The Rio Grande River, the natural division between the United States and Mexico, snakes below the bridge. The three of us are standing in front of a red brick apartment building in Segundo Barrio, a historic neighborhood in downtown El Paso. In the late 1800s, thousands of Mexican immigrants passed through or lived in Segundo Barrio. It's also known as the Ellis Island of the
4: Border. Not the other Ellis Island, but the original Ellis Island.
3: The colorful streets of this neighborhood are full with layers of history. Once, it was home to El Tostado, or
4: Don Tosti. He was the first Mexican-American musician to sell more than a million records. And he was a pachuco.
3: A few blocks down lived Abelardo Delgado, a Chicano writer and community organizer. But there's someone else who lived inside the red brick apartment building we're standing in front of, whose legacy and history has not always been widely celebrated. In this exact apartment once lived Teresa Urrea, a Mexican revolutionary, a curandera or healer, and
4: a feminist. She was everything. She was a curandera. She was a newspaper editor. I mean, so many people were drawn to her charisma that literally hundreds of people would set up tents in front of her home there.
3: In 1896, Teresa Aurea moved to El Paso. People loved her. They worshipped her
4: like a saint. Teresita became a symbol of a forgotten history that was utterly fascinating. I mean, she was like the Selena of her time.
1: From Futuro Media and PRX, it's Latino USA. I'm María Hinojosa. Today, we bring back to life the forgotten story of Teresa Urea, the Mexican Joan of Arc. Back in 2006, the city of El Paso approved a plan to demolish Segundo Barrio, the same neighborhood where Teresa Urrea healed hundreds of people in the 1800s. Teresa Urrea was a curandera who used herbs and traditional indigenous healing methods. But there are also various accounts of Teresa having a special power. She could heal through her touch. In the late 19th century, Teresa was a star. Aside from people believing she was a saint... Her vision of love and equality inspired rebellions in Mexico against the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz. But with time, her miraculous life got erased from history books and museums. To understand the story of Teresa Urrea is to understand what gets remembered and what gets forgotten. Two historians, David Romo and Yolanda Leiva, were part of a resistance movement to the city's demolition plan. They created Museo Urbano, a space to celebrate the legacy of Segundo Barrio. The museum included an exhibition in the very same apartment where Teresa once lived. Today, Teresa Urrea, who at 19 years old was once called the most dangerous girl in Mexico by the dictator Porfirio Diaz. Our producer, Maria Esquincan, is going to take it from here.
3: Teresa Urrea was born in 1873 in the lush, green state of Sinaloa, Mexico. Her mother, Cayetana Chavez, was an indigenous woman. She worked in the ranch of Don Tomás Urrea, a tall, light skinned, rich hacendado with Spanish lineage, notorious for his wondering eye. Cayetana was just 14 years old when she gave birth to Teresita, the daughter of Tomás Urrea.
2: So if we're looking at it from the perspective of society back then, 14 is a pretty common age to get married and to start having children.
3: This is Yolanda again, a Chicana historian at the University of Texas at El Paso. She specializes
2: in border history. What is not different is that power relationship, that he's her employer. So we don't know, like, did she want to have sex with him or, or was it forced? So if we look at that power dynamic, then I think it's very questionable.
3: In an interview, Teresa said she was an illegitimate child. She was one of 19 children Don Tomás Urrea had outside of his marriage. As a child, Teresita must have stood out as a mestiza. She's described as having light skin, large brown eyes, and long black hair. In 1880, when Teresa was seven years old, Porfirio Diaz's first term as president of Mexico was ending. A military general, he came into office by staging a coup and reigned over Mexico for more than 30 years. The general would shape the course of Teresa's life. Porfirio Diaz's time in office is known as the Porfiriato. He ruled with an iron fist and secured his presidency by installing his supporters in positions of power. His opponents were sometimes
4: assassinated. And he basically controlled the whole shebang, you know, all of Mexico through corruption, through just having the just keeping a good relations with the oligarchy in every different state.
3: This is David Romo again, the history professor who specializes on the borderlands. He wrote about Teresa Urea in Ringside Seat to a Revolution, his book about El Paso and Ciudad Juarez's connection to the Mexican Revolution. In Sinaloa, Teresa's father, Tomás Urea, is forced to leave the state because he didn't support the Diaz-backed candidate for governor. Don Tomás Urea decided to move to another family-owned ranch further north, in Cabora, a city in the neighboring state of Sonora, some 200 miles away. Cayetana and Teresa, who was seven years old at the time, were among the hundreds of people who joined Tomás Urea in his exile from Sinaloa. For all of her childhood and into her teenage years, Teresa grew up with her mother in separate quarters from the ranch. She grew up in poverty, surrounded by indigenous people like her mother.
2: Teresita Urea is... Growing up in this time of great changes in Mexico, great economic changes, and the rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting poorer, and there's a little middle class, but it doesn't have much power.
3: Teresita didn't go to school until she was nine years old, but she didn't want to study. The more and more I read about Teresa, the more obsessed I became. There was something marvelous or otherworldly about her. The details that seeped in through newspapers, interviews, and archives were fascinating. Take this quote, for example, taken from an interview in the San Francisco Examiner in 1900, where she described how she learned to read.
5: Later, I felt I wanted to learn how to read, and I learned my alphabet from a very, very old lady. My writing came to me of itself. I wanted to write, and I wrote... But how I learned, I don't know, for I was not taught. On the floor of my mother's house, I first wrote with my little finger in the dust.
3: The quotes you will hear of Teresa are taken from English newspaper articles. Teresa didn't speak English, so they are translations. And they are voiced by one of our producers, Victoria Estrada. When Teresa was 15 years old, her mother Cayetana disappeared. It's not clear why. Why? Like many details in Teresa's life, there are things we just don't know that have been lost in the historical record. After her mother disappeared, Don Tomás Urrea ordered Teresa to move into the ranch with him. Teresa's life completely changed. The dirt floors she grew up with were replaced by the white adobe walls of her father's large hacienda. Don Tomás Urrea's mistress, a teenager, nearly the same age as Teresita, lived in the hacienda, too. At her father's ranch, Teresa became an apprentice to Huila, a Yaqui curandera who worked for her father. The Yaquis are an indigenous group in Sonora. Through Huila, Teresa learned how to heal by using plants, part of an indigenous traditional medicine practice known as curanderismo that predates the 16th century. Curanderismo refers to a system of healing practiced in Mexico, Latin America, and in places with large Mexican communities like the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Prior to the Spanish colonization of Mexico, there were indigenous healers across the region.
2: If you look at traditional medicine among indigenous people before the Europeans came, Everybody was very specialized. Some people knew about plants. Some people knew how to work with bones. Some people knew how to do massages. Just like we would think of a medical specialization today.
3: It's believed curanderos have a special don or gift that allows them to cure others. And unlike Western medicine, curanderismo is not limited to the physical body. It concerns itself with the psychological, spiritual, social, and health needs of a person, that mind and body are connected. With Spanish colonization in the 16th century, indigenous healing methods merged with European practices. The word curandero comes from the Spanish word
2: curar, which means to heal. So then when the Spanish come and begin to control society, They, too, want to undermine the idea that indigenous people have knowledge or can contribute. So they don't want people to think, oh, look at this highly specialized medical system. Curanderismo was looked down upon by Spanish physicians and was
3: even considered criminal. During the Mexican Inquisition, curanderismo was a prosecutable crime. Characteristics of curanderismo include ritual, Catholic prayer, the use of plants and herbs, and the belief in God or creator. To become a curandera takes years of training. It's not something anyone can
2: just pick up. It's a commitment that is taken very seriously. So it's just like I wouldn't take a biology class and say, I'm a doctor now. People shouldn't call themselves a curandera if they have not Really thoroughly trained, and they have a teacher who has trained them.
3: Back in El Paso, I'm in the house of Gris Muñoz. My name is Gris Muñoz. A self-described mujer medicina or a curandera. She burns carbón de mezquite, copal, lavender, and tobacco. The smoke fills the room and hovers around us, swirling in S's. Gris feels connected to Teresa, she has a picture of her in her altar.
6: I'm very connected to Teresita. She's been watching me a long time. And is still around. She hasn't gone anywhere.
3: Gris is also close friends with one of Teresa's living relatives, the Chicano writer Luis Albertura. Like Teresa, Gris was the apprentice of a curandera for years. Gris works with the spirit.
6: I'm not a midwife. I'm not a sobadora. I'm not a huesera. Women tend to find me when they've gotten themselves a bit lost. Maybe they just went through a major change. Maybe they need to accept something, a death of some type. That's really where I come in. I can't speak for all curanderos, but essentially, especially the ones that work with the spirit like I do, We're just here to help you reconnect. In the borderlands, curanderismo
3: is still very prevalent. The borderlands used to be part of Mexico until the mid 19th century, 25 years before Teresa was born. But during the Mexican-American War of the late 1840s, Mexico lost Arizona, California, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. To the US. Under her apprenticeship with Huila, Teresa learned the names and properties of more than 200 herbs. She followed Wila around while her teacher did things like helping women give birth or treating wounds and illnesses. Then, something happened to Teresa when she was 16 years old. There's varying accounts on the next set of events. Some accounts say Teresa had an epileptic seizure. Other reports say an engineering student tried to rape her, and it gave Teresa a shock-induced seizure. In either case, after losing consciousness, Teresa fell into a coma. They think she's dead. Teresa's father put his ear against her chest to listen for a heartbeat, but he couldn't hear anything. He ordered a coffin to be built. They prepared Teresa for a wake... Dressed her in a white dress. They placed her body on a table and surrounded her
6: body with candles. So they make her a, a casket. And in el velorio, she wakes up, and everyone is like, "Holy shit!"
3: After waking up, Teresa predicted that in three days they were going to need the coffin for someone else.
6: And then wila died.
3: Three days later, Teresa's teacher was found in her room. It looked like she passed away peacefully. The cause of her death wasn't clear, but people speculated she died from old age or exhaustion.
6: And they buried Willa in the casket they had made for Teresita.
1: Coming up on Latino USA, Teresa Urrea wakes up from her coma with a newfound power She can miraculously heal people through touch. Stay with us. No te vayas.
0: Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com/latino. That's o d o o.com/latino. Odoo, modern management made simple.
1: We're back. When we left off, Teresa Urrea had woken up from a coma and had predicted the death of her mentor, Huila Ayaki Curandera. Now, Teresa realizes she has a new miraculous power. Producer Maria Skinka is going to pick up the story from here.
3: After waking up from her coma, Teresa wasn't normal. She fell into a trance that lasted three months and 18 days. In an article from the San Francisco Examiner, Teresa Urrea said she didn't remember anything that happened during those three months.
5: They tell me, those who saw me, that I could move about, that they had to feed me, that I talked strange things about God and religion.
3: During this trance, Teresa said she had a vision. The Archangel Gabriel appeared to her as a young man. He delivered her a letter. It urged everyone to repent from their sins, believe in Jesus, and they would be cured. When she finally returned to full consciousness, Teresa had a gift. She could heal people through touch. One of the people she cured in Cavora was Mariana, a woman in her 20s that couldn't walk. After Teresa cured her, Mariana was able to walk again and she became her devout, loyal friend and assistant. Teresa described a change happening within her when she healed people.
5: I could still, if I touched people or rubbed them, make them well. I felt in me only the wish to do good in the world. I spoke much to the people about God, not about the church or to tell them to go to church, but about God. I told them what I believe, that God is the spirit of love, that we who we are in the world, must love one another and live in peace. Otherwise, we offend God.
3: Word quickly spread about the miraculous healer. Hundreds of people started visiting her father's ranch in Kawora. They traveled long distances and were often poor and indigenous people of the region, the Yaqui and Mayo Indians. Teresa refused to charge for her services.
5: I have no wish to be paid. I do not care for fine things or fine houses or money. I will refuse no one to help.
3: Aside from her healing powers, there were other supernatural phenomena associated with her.
4: Her family members believed that she was able to predict even when people were about to arrive that she had no knowledge of, she would say, this such and such a person is going to come tomorrow, and they would... She could predict rain. She could predict deaths in the family. She had other strange qualities. And people would say that she emitted an aroma of roses. Like so many people would say that. Like she just smelled like roses.
2: There are also accounts of her quote-unquote astro projecting. Like she could travel out of her body, and she could describe places she had never been. And it's not like she had the internet, (laughs) right? Where we could fake it.
3: People began to call her a saint and worshipped her like one. They called her Santa Teresa, La Santa de Cabora, Santa Teresita. She was only 16 years old. They created prayer cards with her image. In one prayer card, she stoically stands. She's dressed in a black dress that covers her arms. A long black cross hangs from her neck. Her black hair is wrapped in a braided bun. Angels surround her. Two cherubs hold a crown they are placing over her head. Her gaze is looking at the distance. They built wooden statues of her to venerate her like a saint. Teresa said she was not a saint, that you don't need the mediation of the church or priest to cure an idea that she repeated more than once. In doing so, she challenged the authority of the Catholic Church, one of the most powerful institutions in
5: Mexico even today. I felt that God willed that I should heal them, and when they asked me, I did so. No, I do not think prayer is necessary, nor does one have to believe in me to be cured. If I can cure, I can. priest denounced
3: her as a heretic, an imposter, an evil worker. The clergy threatened to excommunicate everyone that seeked her help. Here's Gris again, the curandera from El Paso.
6: They saw her like a living saint. So you can imagine what heresy to call a teenage girl a santa, right? A living teen girl, a santa. So she became a problem. In those times, The only people that could talk to God were priests. From a young age, Teresa
3: was breaking all sorts of traditional norms and rules.
6: She was completely considered heretical and completely forward for her time in every way.
3: At the same time, the power of dictator Porfirio Diaz only kept growing. Under the Porfiriato, thousands of Yaquis were taken from their lands, and expelled as slaves to Yucatan. Here's David Romo again.
4: So Porfirio Diaz in Sonora carried out this very destructive warfare against the indigenous Yaqui population and would send the Yaquis to southern Mexico to virtual death camps and slave camps.
3: Teresa was often visited by the Yaquis in Cawora, and she was sympathetic to their uprisings. She often defended them and said they had the God-given right to fight for their land and freedom. In later interviews with the New York Journal, she described watching Yaki children, not even three years old, being lynched. She called the Yaquis the bravest and most persecuted people in the world. This, at a time when opposing the Diaz regime, was deadly.
4: So Teresita Urrea told the Yaquis to fight for their lands, and of course this brought the enmity of Porfirio Diaz.
3: While Teresa never took arms, she inspired rebellions. This was the case in one small town called Tomochic, located in the Sierra Madre of Chihuahua, about 200 miles away from El Paso. After hearing about Teresa's power, Cruz Chavez, the leader of Tomochic, and other villagers traveled to Cabora to meet with Teresa. They witnessed hundreds of people camped out at her father's ranch. They had heard of Teresa's healing powers and visited her to be cured. They were moved by her vision of love. Cruz Chavez, the Tomochic leader, and Teresa became friends and started exchanging letters. When the villagers returned to Tomochic, they decided to only worship living saints. They replaced the statue of a dead saint with a statue of a living Teresa. They chose La Santa Cabora, Teresita, as the official guardian of the town. This brought the great ire of a local priest who threatened to excommunicate every Tomocheco who believed in Teresa. When they refused to obey, The priest sent out a message to the government. Porfirio Diaz ordered the rebels to be, quickly and severely punished.
4: And Porfirio Diaz sent hundreds of troops to utterly destroy the entire town.
3: The rebels flinged themselves into a fight they were destined to lose, shouting, Viva la Santa de According to Romo, they killed 600 federal troops, but the Mexican government led a ruthless fight. They set fire to the village, killed women and children. They stacked the bodies of the dead with their leader Cruz Chavez on top. Not one boy or man over the age of 13 survived, according to historians.
4: So it was just kind of a vicious, vicious attack on anyone that would um, challenge the power of the dictator of Mexico at that time.
3: The Mexican government claimed Teresita incited the rebellion. She always denied any involvement in any uprisings, but she also defended them. She believed revolution was necessary when people were oppressed. When she was 19 years old, Porfirio Diaz exiled Teresa from Mexico. I can't help thinking of Teresa's power, of the fact that men threw themselves into
2: a revolution while screaming her name. Porfirio Diaz had said she was the most dangerous girl in Mexico, and she was a teenager. So what would make a teenager dangerous to a dictator with incredible power and incredible policing power? You know, that to me shows you the power of her love and the power of her vision, which was that everyone should be equal, men and women, Mestizos, blancos, uh, indigenous people, everybody's human.
3: After being exiled from Mexico in 1892, Teresa lived in Nogales, Arizona. By then, Teresa was already a star. The world press had been covering her miraculous cures for two years at that
4: point. She was in the newspapers all the time, the local newspapers, newspapers in Mexico City. And there were articles like from all over the United States about her, you know, the New York Times. And I know that there were people from France writing letters to her. So there's this like mega superstar in the world of the 1890s.
3: Reading the articles, it seems there's almost an obsession with her. They often start by focusing on her looks they call her beautiful. In one article, she's described as Mexican in hue with large, handsome eyes, hypnotic, some people call them, raven-haired, tall, and slender. Another article is headlined, she is not pretty. It goes on to say that she is not ugly, but she has, quote, a squatty figure and a round, fat face, just as hundreds of ordinary Mexican women have. They speculate and scrutinize her cures. One article mentions American physicians don't take her seriously because she doesn't practice germ theory and touches the hands of the people she helps. Many describe Americans looking at her with amusement. Some newspapers label her a miraculous healer and others a crazy saint. They call her the living patron saint of the Indians. There are very few articles that actually include interviews with her. Either way, it seems they couldn't stop talking about her. After living in Arizona, she moved to El Paso in 1896. Hundreds of people gathered at the Union Depot train station awaiting her arrival. People would spend hours trying to catch just a glimpse of Teresa, an El Paso Times article from that time reports. I imagine it. The hordes of people pushing up against each other. Tiptoeing over each other's shoulders. The buzz and excitement in the air. The way they must have screamed her name when the train arrived. How they must have roared. No less than 3,000 people visited her house on the day she arrived, the article noted.
6: She would stand there, llegaban, you know, hundreds of people. The line would be completely down, Segundo Barrio. And, And she would heal them with her hands.
3: Teresa Urea calculated that she cured up to 200 people a day in El Paso. From six in the morning to nine at night, Teresa cared for the ill. Various accounts exist of her healing work and her miracles. She cured people suffering from smallpox, leprosy. She touched people who were paralyzed and they could suddenly walk again. The El Paso Times reporter
2: also described Teresa looking pale and weak. She wasn't taking care of herself, because how can you see hundreds of people per day? And then she must have been under a lot of pressure because there were thousands of people waiting to see her.
3: Throughout her life, her connections to the Mexican Revolution continue, earning her the title The Mexican Joan of Arc. In El Paso, Teresa co-edited El Independiente, an anti-Diaz newspaper, Some of the articles have her signature.
4: During this period, there were about 40 Spanish-language newspapers in El Paso. And the large majority of them were anti diaz They were anti the dictatorship of Mexico. And so Teresita was part of that movement, you know? Like, she, she was spreading the seed, spreading the ideas.
3: Throughout her life, Teresa was vocal about the Mexican government's exploitation of indigenous people.
5: I pity the Indians of Sonora. I wish they were cared for and protected. I fear they will be exterminated. I would do anything for them.
3: The year Teresa arrived in El Paso, she co authored El Plan de Tomochic, a manifesto accusing the Mexican government of murdering Yaqui children. It also called for the abolishment of the death penalty and the emancipation of women.
4: And half of the people that signed this manifesto were women. So that's like incredibly advanced.
3: During the same year, another anti diaz rebellion breaks out, this time at a Mexican customs house located in
4: Nogales, Sonora. This is on August 12, 1896. And there's 40 rebels that attacked the Mexican customs house in Nogales, Sonora, shouting, Viva la Santa de Cabora.
3: The rebels killed two Mexican soldiers and temporarily took control of the customs house for several hours. Some of the men carried letters signed by Teresa, pictures of her, copies of the newspaper she co-edited. U.S. and Mexican soldiers joined forces and killed seven of the rebels. A picture of their dead bodies was published in the press. The caption described them as Los Indios Fanáticos de la Santa de Cabora, the extremist Indian followers of la Santa de Cabora. The American press became highly critical of her. They accused her of leading several rebellions, including the one in
4: Nogales. So after this happens, the media begins uh, questioning just how dangerous she was.
3: Headline after headline accused her of leading rebellions, of hypnotizing the peaceful Yaqui Indians of causing trouble in Mexico with her spiritualist propaganda.
2: That whole idea of calling her a witch is a way to discredit her, to undermine her knowledge and her influence. And then by saying that she's the reason that indigenous people are rebelling, that's a way also to say they're too ignorant to organize on their own. Her vision of love, justice, and equality
3: was so strong that even if she didn't tell people to take arms, she became their war cry. She turned into a symbol of resistance. Traditionally, it's taught that the Mexican Revolution began on November 20th, 1910, after Teresa died. But David argues that the revolution began sooner.
4: That's the encyclopedia version. This revolutionary activity happened way before 1910. So it's naive to think that on one day, one guy calls for people to revolt and everybody rises up. No, you plant seeds, sometimes for decades, and there's a lot of failed battles.
3: He places Teresa Aurea as a key figure in the Mexican Revolution that deserves more recognition, but whose role has been ignored by historians.
4: Her role in the Revolution was not to shoot people. It was to inspire people. is fronteriza-based healing powers that could ultimately change the world, that they could lead to a revolution, to a more just vision of who we are as a community. And that was incredibly ahead of her time.
3: For Yolanda, the history professor, Teresa's radical politics set her apart from other curanderos.
2: I think the more important thing that sets her apart is that she combined traditional knowledge with, I guess, what we would call now social justice. I don't see that in the other healers of that time. That's what sets her apart, is that combination of tradition, but also a vision for a better future.
3: While she lived in El Paso, they tried to kill Teresa three times, causing her to leave just a year later. She faced assassination attempts throughout her life. Here's Greece again.
6: It's incredible to think that a young woman could be such a threat to, like, a government, a whole system of patriarchy.
3: After leaving El Paso, Teresa moved to Clifton, Arizona. There isn't a lot of reporting on this period of her life until 1900. In Clifton, she met a man called Guadalupe Rodriguez. Guadalupe remains a mysterious man. It's hard to find any archival information about him. In an interview with one of Teresa's relatives, he's described as handsome. Teresa married Guadalupe eight months after meeting him, against her father's wishes. At the time, Teresa was 27 years old. The day after they got married, Guadalupe tried to kill her. Teresa recounted what happened in an article from the San Francisco Examiner.
5: The next day after we were married, he acted strangely. He tore up some things of mine, packed some of my clothes in a bundle, put it over his shoulder and said to me, come with me. The people who saw him said for me not to go, but I followed him. He walked on the railroad track. I did not know where he wanted to run. I ran too. He had his gun and started to shoot. The people ran out and made me come back. Then they caught him. He was insane and they put him in jail. A headline from the time read,
3: Santa Teresa shot by spouse. Yaqui Saint finds marriage a failure. Other articles reported that she lost popularity amongst her followers because saints are not supposed to get married. She later divorced him. Teresa then left her family in Clifton and traveled to San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and St. Louis. She was planning on embarking on a world tour and wanted to travel to Europe and India in order to learn about the source of her healing powers. She said her power came from God, but she wanted to learn how it moved through her body. I seek to find out whence the power is derived. She wanted to travel to cities like Paris and Jerusalem.
5: Where may I find someone wise in such matters, who can and will tell me the secret? But she didn't make it to those cities. In
3: 1902, her father died. That same year, she gave birth to her first child. Teresa had lived in New York for a year with her translator and a family friend, John Van Order. She had two daughters with him. At the time, this would have been
4: very controversial since they were not married. She was definitely a woman ahead of her times and a woman that that straddled many different borders. She was a liminal being, somebody that's neither here nor there. And I think that's what made her so fascinating. So this was a woman that was defying all kinds of traditional boundaries.
3: In 1904, Teresa moved back to Arizona with her partner, John. She bought some land and had a house built. On October 15, 1905, Teresa Urea hosted a party in her newly built home in Clifton to celebrate her 32nd birthday. I imagine this moment, the air abuzz with celebration and joy, they just blew out the candles. Everyone's eating cake. Teresa liked to play the guitar and the marimba. She loved to sing. The room, freshly minted by her voice. Maybe she had just opened gifts. But then, Teresa predicted she would die before her next birthday, when she would turn 33. Then she went around the room and said goodbye to every guest. Months later, on January 11, 1906, Teresa was at home with Mariana, her old-time friend and aide, and one of the first people that she had healed. She told Mariana, "Put
5: me in this room and put these clothes on me."
3: The room she was referring to was on the second floor of her house. It was called the flower room because it was full of flowers, ferns, and plants. It was built to allow the maximum amount of sunlight. Teresa loved flowers. She grew geraniums, begonias, a bright red hibiscus. Her hair was five feet long. Teresa would kick it out of her way when it was loose. It was longer than
5: her body. When they offered her tea, Teresa said, I do not want tea. I feel so badly. I think this is my last day of life. Teresa asked for a pan and a towel.
3: She washed her hands, wiped them down, tied them with a blue ribbon, handed the towel back, and said,
5: Take this. I will never use it again. She then went to rest
3: in her bedroom. By late afternoon, Teresa died. Mariana dressed her in a white robe and a blue shawl. When they put Teresa in the coffin, they wrapped her long hair around her arm. She gave instructions to lay her in the flower room for her funeral. I can imagine Teresa suspended in flowers. The cause of her death isn't clear. She might have had tuberculosis or pneumonia. The official record stated consumption.
6: That's another like, aspect of curanderismo, is that life force that you have that you're sharing it with people and they're they're taking little little pieces of it, little pieces of it, little pieces of it. Eventually, you know, a lot of curanderos get really sick and they die, (laughs) you know. And so it's that deep of a commitment when I tell you it's till the death. I can't talk
3: about Teresa without admitting the sadness I feel when I think of her life and death. Her story feels incomplete, like a picture of her that's been punctured with tiny holes. I feel the limitations of the archive, of the gaps in her life. The things about her that I can only imagine or speculate. The sound of her voice, her favorite book,
2: her favorite smell. Yeah, and that's one of the frustrating things to me as a historian, is that especially with women, there's just things we'll never know.
3: I think about the way the press wrote about her. Banish, Senorita, the woes of Teresa Urrea, a witch to be shot. I think of all the violences she must have experienced that we will never know about, and of her strength. She's a woman. She wasn't a saint, she was a teen girl. I imagine the details of her life that an archive imbued with sexism and racism will never be able to tell us about her. Did she stare into a lover's eyes? Did she dance by herself in front of a mirror? Maybe she scribbled her secrets into a journal she secretly stashed away somewhere, only for herself.
6: I don't know why I always think like, I always think about how lonely she must have been and even even growing older and not really knowing who you can trust and really being seen as like a commodity.
3: Her whole life is marked by the things she did for others. What does her life tell us about what society deems worthy of remembering about the life of a revolutionary woman? I imagine her existing without the weight of having to be godly, saintly of her having an ordinary life, drinking a cup of coffee, reading a poem, singing into the stem of a sunflower. I remember her limitlessness, and maybe this is enough. Back at Teresa's former red brick wall apartment in El Paso, the entrance of the building is fenced in with black gates. Through its holes, you can see a giant plaque Historian David Romo reads it.
4: This was the site of the residence of Teresa Urrea, an influential, legendary healer who helped inspire early revolutionary movements.
3: There were once murals that covered the courtyard adjacent to the apartment complex that hosted Museo Urbano. The murals were painted by students and people from the neighborhood. Now they've been painted over in a coat of beige only one tiny mural stands. The Museo Urbano closed down in 2012 after they ran out of funds. And although the museum is gone and the murals are gone, the spirit of the museum lingers like a photograph.
4: I have never seen a reaction as joyful and as grateful and as excited and enthused for any museum I've ever been to. And yeah, that hit me. Like, people were just, like, they're so hungry. To have like a a piece of their history be honored, be dignified, even if it's something very small and very poor.
3: And maybe that is the biggest testament to Teresa's legacy, that even though her history was largely erased and forgotten, her memory lives on in this building, in this city, in its people.
2: One of the failures, I think, of radicals in the history of this country is that they look only at politics, but they don't think about love. But I'm not talking about mushy, you know, romantic love. I'm talking about the kind of love that recognizes the humanity in other people. And if we recognize the humanity in other people, like I believe Teresita did, then you want the best for them like you want for yourself. And that would just change everything.
1: This episode was produced by Marias and edited by Marta Martinez. It was mixed by Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Fact-checking for this episode by Ben Kalen. The Latino USA team includes Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Daisy Contreras, Mike Sargent, Victoria Estrada, Reynaldo Leaños Jr., Patricia Zulbaran, and Julia Rocha, with help from Raul Perez. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our associate engineers are Gabriela Baez and J.J. Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Our New York Women's Foundation fellow is Elizabeth Lowenthal Torres. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us on our next episode. And remember, no te vayas. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by
0: the Heising-Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. And New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity.
3: At the time, this would have been very controversial since they were not married.
1: Orale, <laughs> From PRX